Welcome to the 10th conversation of the Cooley account. This is a good one. Bob is tipped off that there's a hit on his head, which is the impetus for him turning on the first ward. We also discuss a cold case, and through some investigation of my own, I find out the case isn't so cold anymore. Then the conversation turns to Bob's involvement with the Chinese mafia in Chicago and New York. I hope you enjoy this one. And a reminder, please make sure you follow us. More episodes are forthcoming. This will ensure you know when new conversations drop. Thank you. Here we go. Conversation 10. So, Bob, the Alleman trial is done. You've elevated your status. Work is booming. You've cemented your position in the first ward. What are the events that lead you to try to separate from these people and the first ward? Well, one of the major events that, that changed everything I get a call from Marco, you know, to meet him over at the club. And I'm assuming it's just to get paid on some of the gambling cases I, you know, he gets me because he was getting me two, three uh, on, on the average two or three a week. And, and when I would do with him, it's no matter what the case was, I would charge a thousand dollars a case. Uh, and it worked out great for me because I, I would go into the court and usually be out of there in about 15 minutes. But, you know, even if I had you know, two or three cases, I'd walk in there and a lot of times they'd dismiss him because I knew the policemen. These guys were all good friends. And most of the time when they made the arrest and they didn't have a proper warrant or the warrant was faulty and, uh, and they would indicate that to the prosecutor. And, and a lot of my cases would be dismissed. And sometimes if there was a hearing too, it, it wouldn't take, it wouldn't take long. How serious of a crime were these gambling crimes? So well, for, they, for they, on they average, tried. what, what give me on average, what one of these crimes was and what it looked like you were doing. It was these uh, bookmakers that, you know, they would raid the, they would raid the, the house where they were, or in some cases now, these guys would get motel rooms, a different room. Sometimes they'd be following these guys. They knew who the, the major bookmakers were. There were two gambling units, two, you know, that worked separately. And, uh, but again, I was friends. I was good friends with all of them and with the sergeants and with the patrolmen. Because, you know, I've been going to their parties for years as a policeman. And even afterwards, I would go to a lot of their, uh, what they called ship parties. And getting back to what, what happened this particular occasion, I meet him over at the club. He says, let's take a walk. And a lot of times we would walk out when we would talk about, we would talk about certain things because they were, even though they had the club swept, you know, for bugs, they were always, you know, on, on major matters, they would go outside and walk around the block. Well, in this in this particular case, we start walking around the block. I had already agreed to handle a, a uh, extortion case uh, with Frank Ranella. Frank Ranella, Nick Bolahanis, and Donnie Scalise had been charged with extortion when they were hitting somebody for street tax. Nick, the salesman, who was a bookmaker and who was also booking out at the racetrack and who also had a card game. He was complaining because they hit him for a third time when they found out he was booking over at the racetrack. He was complaining about having to pay. You know, I pay, pay, pay. I remember listening to the tapes. He was wearing a wire. The FBI had put a wire on him. They wind up arresting these three people. And I had agreed to handle the case. I didn't want to work with Eddie Jensen, but, uh, you know, they pressured me and pressured me. And eventually I, I agreed to do it because Ranella wanted me to represent him. He was a, you know, I knew Frank for a long period of time. He was a hitman himself and he was a collector himself. As we're walking around the block, Marco tells me, he says, we're going to, you know, you don't have to worry about the case. 
And I said, what do you mean? And he says, we're going to kill him. And uh, when he when he said that to me, it just totally caught me off guard. I mean, I had heard these people talking about other killings and whatever uh, when I was at the clubs and when I was running around with these people. And uh, but it had nothing to do with me. Uh, but in this case, it just really caught me off guard. And I said, you know, I wanted nothing to do with something like that. I, anyhow, I said to him, you know, I said, you know, Mark, you know, there's no need to, you know, because I said, in fact, it makes it more difficult. I said, if you if you kill him, if he doesn't show up in court, they can use his grand jury testimony in the trial and I won't get a chance to cross examine him. And he got very angry with me. And for the first time ever, you know, don't ever tell us what to do. He says to me, nobody wears a wire in us and lives to talk about it. And as we're walking along, I'm I'm thinking it's just bullshitting because he's supposed to be in witness protection. And I figure he's just bullshitting me. Well, that same night, I'm out with uh, Johnny DiArco with the senator. I'm double dating with him. In fact, we, we went to see a movie with our girlfriends over on Michigan Avenue. And I hear in the, in the radio, somebody was shotgunned out in Elmwood Park. It turned out they wound up uh, they wound up killing them in an alley of about two blocks from where we're walking. You know when I when I heard that, you know I'm just really not in a great mood and all. I'm just what the hell because if I had realized that they had the you know capability of finding this guy and doing it, I would have found some way of warning them. There's no question I would have you know I would have tried to find some way to warn them, but I just thought they were just talking. He's in witness protection, but they're able to find out where he is regardless. Yes. These people, through the first ward, we had contacts. I say we because I was a part of it for about two, three years. I find out we had contacts everywhere. I mentioned before in the MCC, we had contacts there. And when I say contacts, people that would do our bidding. Uh, Eddie Jensen had somebody over there in the uh, in the uh, MCC, Metropolitan Correction Center, that uh, could get our people uh, assigned anywhere to the jails. In fact, he told me when I was representing Frank, don't worry about it. And, and he told the the clients that if you do get sentenced, we'll send you up to Oxford. He had some woman over there that was doing all the assigning. And as I said, we had contacts, these people, Marcy and company had contacts in the federal system that uh, would do their bidding. And that that's why I had no, there's no way in the world I was going to go into witness protection. I knew they'd put a, a big number on my head, and they put a million dollars on my head, and uh, they had contacts throughout the whole the entire federal system. They had ex U.S. attorneys that was uh, that was in their pocket, and, and as I said, I didn't realize it until this happened. And as I spent more time, you know, with Pat and those people, especially on those rides in the limousine every Thursday, when I got invited to uh, to go along with that, I would hear all kinds of conversations where they were able to fix things in the federal court. Wait, I don't, so, I don't well, know about these Thursday rides in limousines. That's a new development. Tell me about that. Every Thursday, Pat Marcy, there would be uh, the uh, Ben Stein. Ben Stein was the, and, and again, talking about their power, Ben Stein was the head of the janitor's union. Among other things, they had the janitors in the federal building. They had the contract for the janitors in the federal building. So they had access to all the offices up there in the FBI headquarters. Uh, ben Stein was a, a multimillionaire. Every Thursday, he would come to counselors. He'd park the limousine out in the front, 
and uh, and he'd come in there and he'd meet with Pat and with Dominic Sinise, head of the Teamsters, and with, you know, other prominent people, not just, you know, in Chicago, different people, celebrities and mobsters that would come in and union people that would come in from out of town. And every Thursday, uh, they would go out and drive around and we would we would spend time first there at counselors and then we would drive around to different restaurants around the city. After I fixed Terry's case, you know, I was invited to join him and for the next almost two years, I would join up with them and I would be out with them roaming around and spending time there at counselors with all these different people that came in. They would discuss a lot of business. They'd be talking about who's going to be getting different contracts and they would talk about, you know, all kinds, all kinds of things. These limousine rides were business and pleasure, meaning they were they were driving around talking business, but also going to restaurants and bars and clubs and whatnot. But well, it was more it was more than just that. It wasn't a matter. What would happen is they would come, they would meet at Counselor's Row, and uh, and Pat would have things set up. Uh, you know, during anywhere around the election time, there'd be all the election people in there, and these different people would come to Counselor's prior to the elections. And even a day or two before where they would talk about, you know, about different things that, you know, they were going to do, fixing the different elections. And they would discuss, you know, who was supposed to be named the judge and all kinds of other stuff. You were included because you had crossed the threshold after the Alleman trial. Were you advising them in that? Were they asking you questions legally like you were the you were like, so you were there as a legal counsel? uh, And as part of the inner circle, first word, because by now. What I managed to do within a very short period of time was put myself in a position where I became personal friends with a lot of these different types of the different departments and and all kinds of others. And I did that, as I said, by initially by meeting these people during the elections, you know, on the you know, on, on the election day, but there were no other lawyers involved with them. It was just mainly the you know, the mobsters and the you know the top politicians there. Back to this Ben Stein. Ben Stein was the head of the he janitors. So he's a very powerful guy. Was Ben Stein special in some certain way? And do you know that the janitors union, as you mentioned, they have the contract for the federal building, which of course is kind of brilliant in a way if you're the mob. What was her discussion specifically if they needed something out of the federal building or they needed information or were you privy to that? Meaning, did Marcy say, hey, can you get the file from the FBI building via the janitor? Is it, did it, was it, did it ever get that granular? They never talked like that. I, I know exactly what's going on when they're doing things. But my point is, I know that the janitor's union, his union, had the federal building, among other contracts. They had the contracts for all the government buildings. Uh, they had the contracts, too, for 26 in California, for the courthouse. They had all those contracts. And it was publicized, the fact that they were mobbed up. You know, And yet, they're able to do all this. And nobody can stop it. Nobody wants to stop it because so many people are on their payroll. Was Ben Stein a businessman that had to do business with the Marcy's of the world, or was he? He a came partner? there. He came. He wasn't a partner. He did. He took orders, same as Eddie Burke and people like that. They took orders. They they did what they were told. It was interesting too, you know. Following up with with that, Ben Stein always had his girlfriend with him, and I was the only other one who always had a girlfriend. Me, but nobody else had girlfriends. Pat didn't bring girlfriends. None of these politicians brought a girlfriend. What happened was 
as I say, Ben Stein had a girlfriend. I had become very friendly with her. And I, I became very friendly with different chauffeurs that he had. I would, you know, I would always spend a little time with them and socialize with them. What happened was after about a year, a little over a year, the, the girlfriend suddenly disappears. What happened was Ben Stein was married. This was his girlfriend. He was keeping her in an apartment over there on Michigan Avenue. And uh, when he broke up with her, she wanted like $50,000 along with whatever else. Or she might do some talking. So they wound up killing her. And one of the chauffeurs was the one that wound up killing her. Is this public information? Uh, no, it wasn't. It's not public. I knew it because, you know, I, I talked with the different people that were there. It, would this be considered today a cold case murder? Was it solved? Was it in the media? No, they, oh no. The one that killed him, Jack can't think of his name right now. What happened was he was a police detective. What he did was he invited her to a, a sandwich shop over there in Rush Street. From what I was told, just, let, just listening in. I mean, nobody came to me and said it. I was there when they were talking, when certain people were talking about what happened. He took her for a boat ride and she never came back uh, that, that's why they never found her body they you know a number of times they they thought they found her body because she apparently was dumped out there in the lake so the driver was also a police detective and was cpd and this individual was also a hitman he took well not that he was a hitman he did something that, and he wound up taking over the whole business he's the one to this day you know is the head of the janitor's union now he took over the whole business uh, he started off, like I say, a driver. He was a police sergeant, I'm pretty sure. Then they made him a sheriff after he killed her. That's when basically he was made a partner in the business. And when Ben Stein died, he took over the whole business. And to this day, he runs it. Um, Do you remember this individual's name? I, it's in my book. Yeah. And, you know, I, okay. I, I, was, I was just talking about him about, about six months ago because, you know, uh, he, uh, he was the one that hired the police uh, you know, the the uh, ex-police chief wound up being hired by him uh, because he's he's got all the major contracts, you know, there in the, uh, not just in the city, but he's all around, you know, he, it, they're, they're all around the country. They've got, you know, a lot of, they've got a lot of business out there in Vegas and other areas. He, but as I said, he, he basically was made a partner and then took over the business uh, because, no, Ben Stein did what he was told. I mean, Ben Stein sat there almost like a puppet and just, you know, he was told, do this, you're going to do that, you're going to hire these people, you're going to hire these people. But he came there because, you know, uh, he feared these people. These people told him what time to take them, you know, to go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, that's how they, that's how Marcy in particular was. You know, when these people got involved with them, uh, they, they did whatever they were told. I'm going to pause here and fill in the blanks about this missing person and the details which come directly from the Cook County Sheriff's website. The woman that disappeared was Karen Lee Koppel. She was 35 years old. Today, she'd be 77. And again, I'm reading directly from the Cook County Sheriff's website. Date of last contact was April 1980, April 26 to be specific. And this document was actually updated in 2017, meaning modified, it says, on the website. So here's the circumstances of her disappearance. In 1980, Karen Koppel was in a relationship with Ben Stein, a 67-year-old married man known around town as, quote, the king of the janitors, unquote, and had ties to organized crime. 
The relationship began to sour after Koppel realized that Stein was not truly estranged from his wife and had no intention of marrying her. It was during this period that Koppel became pregnant and was coerced to undergo an abortion. Shortly afterwards, Koppel began making wild accusations about Stein and demanded a large financial settlement to let things drop. Stein asked a longtime friend, then Chicago cop Richard Rick Simon, who moonlighted for Stein's firm, to help amicably resolve things, according to police records and interviews. Simon met with Koppel at Flapjaw's Saloon, 810 North Wabash Avenue, the night she disappeared. According to published reports, Simon offered Koppel $10,000 and the free use of a Lakeshore Drive apartment in return for her agreement to exit quietly. Koppel has never been seen since this meeting. There was speculation at the time that the woman was murdered and dumped in the middle of Lake Michigan. Simon said in an interview he doesn't know what happened to Koppel, but doesn't buy that she was murdered. Rather, he suspects she's still alive with a new identity, having left Chicago because she was mentally unstable and horribly, quote, humiliated, unquote, at being spurned by Stein. So with a simple search, that's what you find online about this missing person. I also reached out to some contacts in law enforcement and found out that this is now an active case that was reopened in 2014, 2015 by a federal agency and they have new information regarding her disappearance. That's the only details I got that it had shifted from what would be a cold case to today or 2014, 2015, a active and open case. So there you have the Karen Lee Koppel story as related to Ben Stein and others inside the Chicago machine. Back to our conversation. Let's go back to the path we were on earlier, which was the discussion about the trial that you were you were going to defend. Um, this individual, Marco, comes to you and says, Bob, don't worry about it now. We're going to kill him. He's in hiding. Nothing. You know, we were walking around the block, and he paid me on these cases, but that's when he just mentioned it. He mentioned, you don't have to worry about the case because we're going to kill him. I had mentioned I was having that night, that same night, I'm double dating with, with the senator, you know, whose father, you know, whose father is Johnny Gallico Sr., who, who everybody thinks run the, runs the first war democratic organization. Anyhow, the next morning, I get a call from Frank Ranello, and he said, you know, they want to talk to me. The FBI wants to talk to me. Can you, can you meet me? Now, where, where is the talk taking place? At the Elmwood Park Police Station, because it happened in Elmwood Park. We had complete control over the police department there. You know, the, the police chief was over there at the club all the time. He was there once or twice a week at the club, at Marco's Club in Elmwood Park. I have to sit there with, uh, you know, with Frank, and I know exactly what happened. Uh, you know, while he's, you know, while they're talking to him, obviously nothing transpires from that. And again, after a short period of time, well, so be it. You know, what's happened has happened. Nothing I can do about that. And I felt responsible. Even though I had nothing to do with it, I felt responsible because, you know, I did nothing to stop it because I never dreamed that they could do it. This is early in my stages, you know, with the, uh, with, with the first award. Looking back, do you think this was maybe the first step for you to go to the feds? Was your conscious getting to you? And was this the chipping away that started you well, down that path? It's not a matter of my, con- 
it's not a matter of my conscience. I did what I I did what I thought was right. And, you know, when I say what I thought was right, the system was absolutely totally corrupt from the time I, you know, before I got involved with it. I would only do certain things on myself. I refused to do certain things. I told you from the start, I refused to give them, you know, information on people. I wouldn't handle certain people. I wouldn't handle certain cases. I just wouldn't do things I didn't want to do. Uh, so I never felt guilty about anything. I was super careful to make sure I never, they could never build a case on me when I was involved doing things. I know what to say. And in fact, I advised other people. That's why Marcy and the rest of them like me so much. I advised them on ways to keep them being indicted, you know, and I told Pat and I told the different other mobsters and I explained to bookmakers how they could avoid being arrested. But anyhow, probably about a month or two after all this happens, I'm in federal court. We're involved in motions. We're involved in a pretrial motion on the case. And while we're in there, Eddie Jensen is cross-examining one of the FBI agents and I'm listening to him. And while he's doing it, the agent had talked about Frank Rinella in particular. He had mentioned that, uh, you know, they stopped him on the street and they talked to him or they stopped him and got him into the car and they talked to him. And Eddie Jensen is cross-examining him and he's asking, is this the first time you met him and whatever? And now, I don't know what's going on, but I know something is going on. When we finish up in court that day, I go back to my office and I get a call from the prosecutor, from the federal prosecutor. And he says, can you come by? I want to, there's something I, I want to tell you. So the courthouse was only about four or five blocks away. It was over there on Dearborn Street. So I, I go over there and he says, it's going to come out tomorrow in court that Frank Ronella had, had been a, you know, an informant with the FBI years before on some narcotics matters. And the moment he told me that, I knew that they were going to kill him because Eddie Jensen was involved in the case, and I, and I knew Eddie would go and tell them right away. He had given information on a number of people that wound up getting killed. And that was one of the reasons why I despised him and didn't want to work with him. I go back to the office, and I called Frank, and I just said, you know, are you, you at home? And yeah, and I said, you know, I'm going to be stopping by. I want to talk to you. And I drove over to his house. He lived up on the north side in one of those uh, two-story apartments. When I walk in there, I said, you know, I said, Frank, I said, it's going to come out that you were an informant. And he looks at me, he was a big guy. Frank was about six foot two, part Indian. And he looks at me and, and uh, doesn't say anything. And he walks over and he had a, in like the living room area, they had a refrigerator there. It was in one of those old refrigerators where they had the freezer. You know, they open the top part and there's like a freezer compartment. And he goes over there, opens the top part of it. And in there, he's got a, he's got a small gun, a little five shot pistol. He takes that out and he says to me, are you wearing, are you wearing a piece right now? And I said, no, I had just come from federal court. Normally I wore a gun all the time, but I didn't have my gun. And he does, he had it in the plastic bag and he takes, he takes it out and he had the bullets separated, hands me the gun and then he hands me the bullets and he says, I'm getting out of here. He said, and if you're setting me up, he says, you're walking out in front of me. And he goes and he packs a couple of things in a bag and then out the door we go. And when we walk out, he walks out, you know, I'm in front of him. And as soon as we get out, his car was parked about maybe 20, 30 feet away. Motions me to walk over there and 
gets in the car, closes the door, and drives off. And here I am standing there, and uh, you know, had no idea, you know, how serious these clowns would take it. I leave, and uh, and I and I in fact I wound up afterwards that night. I go out to my restaurant. When I come back home, I get a call. I, I had two phones at the house. I had the regular phone, and I had, I had a special phone I had put into the house. They uh, and it was just for basically for business and for personal friends. It was you know it was a phone number that not a lot of people had, but Marco and those people had it because they would call me. And I had the contact over there at Eleventh and State to get people out on bond right away when they so when they got arrested, especially like on the narcotics or on the gambling cases, if they weren't out of there by a certain time, they sat in jail overnight and they went to 26 in California in the morning. I mean, it was a real pain in the ass situation. I get a call. He was a, he was one of the mob guys, but he was a friend of mine. You know, I had helped him on a, on a couple of problems and he calls up and he just says, he said, Bob, he said, uh, you know, you've got a problem. They've got a hit on you. And, uh, and then he hung up the phone. And uh, it wasn't long after that I got a I got another call uh, on that phone. It was around four o'clock or so. My friend just got arrested, and we want you to go and and I want to meet with you because I want to get you some money, you know, for the bail money. I just basically hung up on him. So now I know I got a problem. I have to go to court the next morning. I'm pretty sure the judge was Judge Layton. He was a black judge. I'm sitting there, and the, the seat next to me is empty, obviously. And, uh, you know, the judge, you know, you know, where's your client? You know, I don't know, judge. You know, I, I, no, I have no idea. And he said, it hit something very strange in front of the whole courtroom. I know we're talking about a courtroom full of people. We've got the other three defendants. We've got the lawyers there. We've got the prosecutors. And he says to me, were you paid on, were you paid on, on your case? And I hadn't been, and I said no. And he said, "Well, if you want to file a, uh, if you want to file a, a request, you know, I'll okay it." <laughs> I have no interest in any, but I, no judge has ever said something like that to me. Have you been paid on your case? If not, you can file, and we'll pay for it. Because I left, and I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I just said, "I'm getting out of town." And I flew out to to California. And I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I think, what the hell am I supposed to do? I, I, I can't practice law. I can't do anything. I said, you know, and after after about a week, I just said, I'm going to go straighten this thing out. I've got to go back and I've got to straighten it out. When I when I came back, I flew back to Chicago. At that time, I'm living at the new I'm living in Newberry Plaza, and I get a hold of another friend of mine, Ronnie Kamish. And he was a he was a big mean looking guy. I knew what I was going to do every Wednesday. These people are creatures of habit. Every Wednesday, Marco would be over at this Italian restaurant in Harlem. Uh, it was a restaurant, you know, with out in the front they had those big windows, you know, completely the windows would cover the whole front part of the area. And it's right and right outside you've got the curb, and then you've got you've got the cars that are parked there. And directly in front of it too, they had. They had a spot that was always open because it was for, you know, for deliveries or whatever. And it was a no parking area directly in front of it. So what I planned on doing was going there and confronting them. I knew that they wouldn't be wearing, I knew they wouldn't be having weapons in there 
and I wasn't physically afraid of any of them. And I don't think any of them were looking for a, looking for a physical beef with me. I told Ronnie, Ronnie always carried a gun too. Ronnie always did have guns with him. And I just said, I have to go and I have to go and make a stop and I'd like you to come with me. I had, I didn't tell him what was going on, obviously. What I planned on doing was parking the car directly in front. Ronnie would be in the passenger side, so, you know, and these people would see me when I pulled up in the car. And, uh, and I was just going to go in and confront Marco, and that's what I did. I walk in there. In fact, when I walk in there, just to the left was the table where they would always be. There were like about six or seven people there. The table held like eight people. It was a big round table. And he was there with his usual crew uh, because they would be discussing gambling business and stuff like that. And I walked in and, and uh, looked at him and just motioned him, you know, to go to the, you know, take a walk into the bathroom. And, uh, and I confronted him. I, you know, I just said, Mark, I said, uh, you know, I did what I did. I said, Frank, Frank is a, is a personal friend of both you and me. I said, he wasn't doing anything to affect you people. I said, he had, he had cooperated years ago on some, on some narcotics matters. But I'm telling you right now, I said, you know, I'm back in town. I said, I'm not going anywhere. If I see anybody around me, I told him I'm going to kill him. And I told him, I said, if I thought I had a problem with you, I'd kill you. I said, uh, I said, I did nothing wrong. I said, and, uh, you know, and I ain't taking no beating and it ain't going to happen. He stood there and, well, you know, you're, you're, you're never going to get any more business from us. You had no business doing what you did. And I said, well, Mark, hey, I did what I did. I'm in, I'm back. I'm not going anymore. I said, and if I see anybody around me, I said, I'm going to kill him. You know, when I left, I had no idea if that would have been the end of it. I made sure when, you know, when I was going anywhere, uh, I'd be in the expressway and I'd make it a point to suddenly slip over to the right and, and jump off and I would make U-turns and do all kinds of this. This went on probably for about maybe two, three weeks. And I planned at that time too, that's when I planned to break away from these people and my relationship, you know, with the first ward. What happened with Frank? He left, he left town and about a year later, they, uh, they arrested him, card room in California. Uh, they arrested him and they brought him back and he, he wound up pleading guilty and getting a short, getting a short sentence. And that was the end of it. He's, he's dead now. He died. I never saw him again. And he was never around the clubs and he was never in the gambling operations. He came back and, you know, and just lived his life out. When Marco wanted to kill you, did he have to go talk to John Sr. or Pat Marcy, or that's just a unilateral decision that he made? I had heard these rumors. I had heard over the years where you couldn't kill anybody unless you got permission and all the rest of that. I had heard that for years. I don't know if that's true or not. I believed that at that time. And that was why I was furious because I had done all these things for Marcy. And I had, you know, I had been done nothing but good for all these people. And I had done nothing wrong here and they were going to kill me. Uh, but they were going to kill me, I find out, as an example, when I, when I was told by, you know, by the same person that, you know, had called me and warned me. He said they were going to make an example out of you for the other lawyers because the other lawyers were doing it and they wanted to make sure that they continued to do it. That was why they were going to kill me as an example to the others that you don't. Because Marco had told me one time when I had the first, uh, it was a burglary case in the federal court. Uh, you know, they wanted me to tell them who the informants were on the, on the gambling cases. And I told them I would not. 
And, you know, then we won't give you the business. And I said, I don't want the business then. But they still gave me the business because, you know, I, Marco was making money off me. And I find out Marco's charging 2500 when he's giving me 100 Some of these people, after I would represent them, I would see some of these same people out at the clubs I'm going to out in the West suburbs. And now I wind up gambling with some of them. But I wind up when we come to you ourselves, and I said, you know, sure, why not? Well, you know. We just weren't sure if we could. But then I find out Marco's charging 2500 with from all of them. That's why he's sending them to me. He's making 1500 bucks every every case. I assume that they're doing certain things. But that was why I wanted nothing more to do with the first war. From what I've heard, you can't break away from these people. So I had to have a reason. So what I did, I had become very, very close with, you know, John DiArco Sr. In fact, when I would go to Florida, I'd wind up staying at his house. He had two homes right there in Hollywood, Florida. My rule was that we, we don't charge any of these, any of these ward people. We don't charge them for their, you know, for their uh, criminal cases uh, because they'll send us other business. But I build up a relationship with these people that way myself. And, uh, there was one, one bookmaker, Nikki. Who, who was a who was also connected with the first ward and Pat DeLeo brings the case to me. Pat says, you know, he got arrested and and it was a gambling case and I met with him and uh, went up there and got the case dismissed and went about my business and never charged him. He was with the ward. He was a captain, a ward captain. Probably about maybe three or four months after this, and I told you Johnny would have these benefit parties even though nobody ran against them. And if somebody did, it was somebody they picked to run against them. There was a benefit party for Johnny at the Ambassador East. And uh, when I'm there, I bump into Nick. Nick uh, sees me there, and he's with somebody else. And he says, yeah, he's a terrific, this is Bob Cooley, he's a terrific lawyer. He said, but boy, is he expensive. And the moment he said that, I knew what happened. Patty was the one that, Leo was the one that referred, you know, that brought him to me. Patty charged him uh, and didn't tell me, and he wasn't supposed to, and he pocketed the money. So Patty happened to be at the same party. There were probably three, four hundred people there. And I walk over to him, you know, Pat, hi, you know, and let me talk to you for a second. And I said, now, Nicky over there told me that, uh, you know, in fact, I said to Nick, I said, I didn't charge you that much. And he says, what, 1500 You know, he said, well, you know, to me, 1500 seemed like a lot. Because I was on... I was there maybe five minutes with him and walked up and walked in and walked out. And I said, uh, yeah, he tells me that, uh, he gave you, he gave you some money in the case. And he goes, Oh, gee, I don't remember. I said, Pat, he told me he gave you 1500. And he, oh, I, you know, and he says, okay. He says, and he had money in his pocket and he, he says, you know, I'll give you some. I says, no, Pat, you'll give me the 1500. And I said, then don't do that again, Pat. It's just not the right thing to do. And uh, this is Johnny's, this is, you know, this is senior's son-in-law. What I did was I used this. This happened now months before, you know, this last thing. When I got a hold of Johnny, I went to see, I went to see senior. Uh, and I said, you know, John, I'm going to, I'm going to break off the partnership. What do you mean you're going to break it off? And I told him, I said, you know, Patty cheated me on a case. And I said, I just don't want to work with anybody that, you know, that I can't trust. What do you, you don't want to, what are you talking about? You don't want to do that. Uh, you know, and they, I just said, John, I'd, I'd like to just end it. That's all. And that was my excuse for breaking away. But 
I had already been contacted a couple of times by other other people who wanted me to you know to open up a law practice with them. The alderman there from the forty first ward, he had been after me to open up a law practice. He was a lawyer and he was after me to you know to go and work with him. What worked out great for me after I ended that, I didn't broadcast the fact that, you know, that I'm ending my relationship with the first ward. I made like everything is still, you know, is still fine. I would be in counselors once in a while, but by now I had moved out to the suburbs where I, you know, I could better protect myself. I didn't know again. I didn't know for a long period of time if they were still going to try to kill me. I didn't know that. Did you move your residence to the suburbs or just your place of work? Oh, yeah. I bought a place in Indian Head Park and, uh, and I opened up a, a practice there and a lot of people still thought that I was interconnected with the first ward. That was a clean break. You just said, hey, I'm done. I, this is the reason why. You moved your operation to the suburbs, and but you still have this feeling you don't know what's going to happen. I, I still didn't. I still didn't know. That was why it was, I mean, you can check, you can check the dates it, it, because the Frank Winella case was at a certain time, and that's when, you know, that's when I broke away. And now it was a period of time. I suddenly, because I'm in counselors all the time, I'm friendly with those people there. I'm friendly with, you know, the owners. And I was down there, and, and I was still always sitting at the first ward table, even though I had broken away and nobody else was allowed there. These guys didn't know I had broken away from them. And, uh, you know, whenever I was there, if the alderman was gone, if Pat wasn't around, I would be there at the table. That's where I would still be. Oh, so now I get a call from, from Fred Rohde. I, no, I saw him when I was there, when I was in, when I was in counselors and I'm walking through there, he calls me over and he says, Bob, and he said, Bob, you know, I want to talk to you. Can we go over to a different table? And he said, Pat wanted me to have, ask you to handle this one case. He's got a case, Lenny Chow. Uh, it was the Lenny Chow case. He said, he's got this case with, uh, with, with somebody who's charged with murder from Chinatown. Uh, and he wants to know if you can, you know, if you can handle it, if you can take care of it. And he said, there's a, there's a Chinese guy, Wilson Moy, who's like the mayor of Chinatown. I want you to meet with him. He says, there's a cat wants you to meet with him and don't tell him that you're connected with us uh, and don't meet him here. Meet him someplace else and talk to him, you know, about possibly representing these people or whatever. And I, I said, okay. And I said, what should I, you know, what should I charge him? And he said, well, see if you can get 25000 But again, don't let him know that you're in any way connected with us. I, he gives me his phone number. I call him. And when I meet him, I find out there's three guys charged with murder. They were up on the balcony there at the China, what they call the Chinese Palace at 22nd Wentworth. From the balcony, they shoot this one guy. The guy winds up dying. He died about about maybe three or four months afterwards, but they get charged with murder. They're all from New York, Lenny Chow and three others. I think two, yeah, there were three others. Let's end this conversation here because we're about to leap off into another crime world, which is that of the Chinese mafia and Chinese organizations inside the United States navigating in Chicago and on the East Coast in New York and Boston. Bob's going to start discussing his journeys to the East Coast and defending some of these characters inside the Chinese mafia. Thanks for listening. The next episode is going to drop rather quickly within the next week. Follow me on Twitter. It's Neil Edelstein, N-E-A-L-E-D-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. And please provide feedback. We're 
always open to listening to thoughts, comments, criticisms about what we're up to. Thank you. Bye.